Well, I haven't seen you all since New Year, so let me begin with saying Happy New Year to you all. As I, w I know it doesn't feel like New Year anymore, does it? You're kind of all going January 8th, 2017, old hat, but I haven't been with you, so uh, I appreciate you all's praying for Evie and I as we had a wonderful time with uh, Campus Outreach and their New Year's conference uh, last week in Greenville, South Carolina. We certainly give praise to the Lord for his keeping us safe, although we both came home with colds. So, you know, we're kind of both in recovery mode. That's what I get when I do 24 hours of meetings in four days. I'm not young anymore, so I need to learn my own limits in terms of things. And let me just say a word um, about worship. I hope it doesn't feel too different to you. There are really not a lot of changes when you think about it. But think about all that we do as a church. We're called to share the gospel, so we do evangelism. We're called to be together as a church, so we enjoy refreshments and fellowship together. And we go to small group Bible studies and community groups, and we study his word. We're learning to be followers of Jesus. We show mercy to those who need mercy. And we do that. If you think about all these things that we do, you do realize that when the life eternal, when the world to come uh, is upon us, when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, we won't be evangelizing. It'll be all Christians. We won't be showing mercy. All our wounds will be bound up. Good news will be received in its consummated fullness to the poor. Talk about studying the Word. We're going to be living with the Word become flesh amongst us. And fellowship will be sweeter than we have ever had before. What will we be doing for all eternity? We'll be worshiping. Worship, I hate to prioritize different things, but worship, I think, is what identifies and makes us a church. It what makes us different from just an ordinary club. You know, you can go and join the Chamber of Commerce or the Rotary Club or do any sort of club and you can spend time with people that you like. Hopefully you like them. You can fellowship together in that sense. You can study. You can pursue a common cause. You can study something. You can do something together. The one thing you're not doing is worshiping. Worshiping is so unique. And what happens in worship is that God actually acts upon his people. He gathers us. He forms us. He speaks to us. Leviticus chapter 26 says he even walks amongst us. He's not far off. He's not distant. So worship, one of our convictions as a leadership is that worship has to be intentional and done to excellence. So what we're looking to do is enhance the worship life and the worship because it's in this time that, gather, that God says, Spruce Creek Church, come together. To be formed and to become Christ-like. As a matter of fact, you might even say worship is the heart of discipleship. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. And now we're turning to the Word of God. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, I'm going to pray a prayer of illumination. We do this, see this, we're printing this in the bulletin. We do this actually every week. We pray and we ask God, we recognize our dependence upon him. We recognize that we can't understand his word. We don't know what it means. We don't know how it applies to our life. We can't see Jesus properly unless the Holy Spirit is taking from what belongs to Jesus and mediating it, applying it, quickening it to our hearts, which for some of us is going to bring us great comfort. For some of us, it's going to enhance our joy. For some of us, it's going to challenge and convict us. 
That's why we say that God is renewing us. He's acting upon us. He's acting upon you and me. I may be heralding this good news and speaking this, but he's acting upon it. That's why sometimes I don't know how I'll even respond in the midst of the preached word. Sometimes I get excited. Excuse me. Sometimes I get excited. Sometimes I get passionate. Most of the time, that's because I honestly do not know how the Holy Spirit is going to impress upon me the very revelation of the heart of God. See, I get excited just thinking about that. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to be our teacher as we turn to his word. Forgive us, Lord, that we don't recognize that we are dependent upon you for every breath, let alone for an understanding and an application and having our lives conformed to your word. And so, Father, now as we open your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher, that you would, in your sovereignty, operate upon us, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus Christ, making us more and more human. And if we don't know Christ, may we see his glory. May we turn to him and trust him as the only way of salvation, as our only hope, and as the liberating, satisfying power of our lives. May we find him more attractive than anything else in the world. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, we're returning this morning to our study of the Gospel of Mark. We had taken a few weeks off as we went through Advent and Christmas season. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, or I think the words are going to be printed upon the wall, or so many different sources of where you can look at them. We're going to read from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, down to chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. This is God's word. The beginning of the Gospel of Mark, remember chapter 1, verse 1, that we started back in the fall. That says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Gospel is about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about his story not about our story. So we're looking at what Mark tells us about the real Jesus, not the Jesus we imagine, not the Jesus the world tells us, not the Jesus we might make up, but the real Jesus, who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. The structure, if you remember, of the Gospel of Mark is very simple. 
Mark has 16 chapters. Chapters 1 through 8, which we're going through largely this year, is who Jesus is. Chapters 9 through 16, what this king came to do. That he came, as we sang in the hymn a few minutes ago, to pay it all. To pay for our sin, to die on a cross. We've seen so far, as we've been going through these early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus claim to have authority to forgive sins, which, if you remember, created quite a stir amongst the religious leadership as Jesus was claiming for himself a prerogative that was held to be found only in the complex of the temple and its services. We've seen him demonstrate his kingship, who he is, he's king. We've seen that demonstrated in his glory, in his healing of the paralytic, in his healing of the leper, of his exorcism of the man who was demon-possessed. But here we pick up this morning with an even far more radical claim. Because what Jesus is doing is not reforming religion. He's not reforming the Jewish way of life. He's not reforming Judaism What he's doing here is he's fulfilling it and replacing it with himself. So in the same way as he says, forgiveness doesn't happen through the temple. Why? Because he's the temple. Here in this passage, he's saying rest doesn't just have to come through the identity marker, if you would, of the Sabbath. Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He himself is the source and the meaning. You might even say, he is the Sabbath. And Mark's aim in this passage is to demonstrate the supremacy, the sovereignty, the lordship of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright has written a book. It's entitled, For All God's Worth. And he writes this. I'm going to try to read this quote carefully and slowly. He says, how can you cope with the end of a world and the beginning of another one? How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of these things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Do you hear what he's saying? He's talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ become human. He's becoming the, talking about the ideal, the creator of all things entering into human history. That's what he means by the hurricane becoming human, the earthquake fitting into a small test tube. And he says Christianity means either that or it means nothing at all. I think he's absolutely correct in pointing out that we live in between. We try to live, and maybe this is the battle, and this is one of the reasons why worship is the most important time of our week, because you want to know what worship is? And maybe this is why we resist it. Maybe this is why we want it to be familiar. Maybe this is why we want it to be comfortable, because worship is nothing less than an 
all-out confrontation of kingdoms. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And even though we've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of life. Do you know what it's like to walk in the tension of the already and not yet? It means these two, nothing short of these two kingdoms are battling each other within us every moment of every day. And worship is almost like a tsunami where they're coming to a head which is one of the reasons we struggle on Sunday morning getting up in the morning. We struggle on Sunday morning with anything that's different. We str- excuse me, the cold comes back every now and then. We struggle every now and then. I know none of us want to admit that, but tension with our spouses? No. None of us ever fight with our wives, right? And Sunday morning seems to bring all of this up because on Sunday morning, do you know what's happening? God is calling us to confront and to make us more human. He's calling us to come to a confrontation with his lordship. And Mark's aim in this passage is to demonstrate and to teach and to narrate on the lordship of Jesus Christ and basically to get us to confront us. See, God's renewing us through his word here. As C.S. Lewis to say, said a long time ago, Jesus Christ is either a, a bold-faced liar a lunatic, in other words, he's a nut job, he's crazy if you take his claim seriously, or he's exactly who he said he'd be. He's Lord. And if he's Lord, the entirety of our lives revolve around him. Mark is disclosing Jesus' lordship and this radical claim here of Jesus in this narrative, and he wants us to know two things about his lordship. He wants us to know what direction his lordship goes in. The ark, what I'm calling the true north of Jesus' lordship. And then he wants us to know the purpose of Jesus' lordship. First of all, the direction of Jesus' lordship. And I have to challenge us with something here real quick because I have to challenge our presuppositions here a little bit. Something that I think occurs within our flesh. And that is when we hear the words Jesus is Lord... Do we automatically think of that as the most liberating, freeing, humanizing thing in the world? That coming under the lordship of Jesus is what's going to actually make us more whole, more human. The reason I say I'm not real sure we totally buy into that is because of the reality of Genesis 3, the reality of the fall, the reality of original sin. See, the sin in the garden of Adam and Eve has infected. We've all caught the flu. We've caught the flu of original sin. And the heart of original sin, you realize when the serpent, the first words the serpent said to Eve were, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You know, it's, it's almost like the serpent is putting in Adam and Eve's mind, how could he? How could God dare to say to withhold something good. So almost putting this little seed of doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve that God's lordship, God's authority, rather than freeing, liberating, and helping us to live as we were designed and created to be, is somehow not good. Somehow will lead to the opposite of freedom, lead to slavery, or lead to bondage, or lead to us not being autonomous. And ever since then, 
This disease has been infected that says we must be in charge of our lives. We must be the captain of our soul. We must be the master of our fate. And so you come to the issue of the lordship of Jesus, and we're immediately confronted with that original sin. Do we believe God is good? In the narrative before us, in Mark chapter 2 and 3, both incidences, the incidents of the disciples going and just plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and the incident of Jesus healing the man with a shriveled, withered hand, both of them revolve around the issue of the Sabbath. So we need to understand, if we're going to need Jesus, understand Jesus' claim here, we need to understand something of the importance of the Sabbath to a Jewish mindset. Because both of these incidents revolve around that particular issue. So, for example, in verse 2 of chapter 3, the text tells us, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. See, they're the, they're the Sabbath police. They're there scrutinizing and watching. Why is that? Because the Sabbath was their identity marker that validated them as Jewish people. One of the things I want you to notice as we walk through this study of the Gospel of Mark is how much conflict is a major theme. And in fact, the narrative ends, verse 6, with telling us that two groups of people, the Herodians and Pharisees, Now, you need to understand about these two groups of people. These were not natural friends. This was not like next-door neighbors. The Herodians were a group of people that kind of operated around King Herod. They were a more political group. The Pharisees were the more religious group that were defending the ways of Judaism. These two groups didn't get along, but they could get along around this issue, how to destroy Jesus. They could get along and conspire around this. Jesus is ruffling feathers here with this claim. One of the reasons you know, this is going to sound very paradoxical, one of the reasons you know you're doing something right sometimes in life, it causes conflict. Because kingdoms, agendas, different things are being threatened. Jesus is causing conflict here. As a matter of fact, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we will see that Jesus was always held under a microscope by those who resisted him, those who opposed him, those that did not understand the true north, the direction of his lordship. Living under scrutiny is never easy. None of us like to live under the pressure of being under scrutiny, but I wonder if we recognize how often we scrutinize others and how often we scrutinize ourselves. You know how this comes, becomes clear to me? You know when I'm one of my biggest scrutinizers is I love to listen to sports radio. And I love the debate. And you know what sports radio debate is all about? Scrutinizing the coach. Scrutinizing the quarterback. They should have run this play. They should have done this. Oh, how could they have made such a boneheaded mistake? They should have done. What are we doing? We're holding the coach, holding the team, holding the quarterback, holding everybody but ourselves under a microscope. And that's what the Pharisees, that's what the Herodians, that's what this Jewish leadership is doing. The Sabbath was the one day in seven where you're directed to rest from your work. And they were so, this was such an identity marker that commentators tell us 
that the Judaism of Jesus' day had 39 types of activity. You want to talk about a checklist of what you could and couldn't do? 39, not just activities, 39 categories of activity. I think it got too hard to count. The commentators started, stopped counting after that. Of activities that you could not do on the Sabbath. Not a whole lot of enjoying God forever, like the catechism question goes on. When all you're thinking about is what I can do, what I can't do. Did I break this rule? Did I follow this rule? And talking about missing the point of the Sabbath. See, do we, if the Sabbath reveals Jesus' lordship, do we understand what the Sabbath is telling us about the lordship of Jesus? See, what is its intent? And what is the intent of Jesus' lordship? Tim Keller writes the following. He says, the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the broken. To heal the man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. Which is why at the end of chapter 2, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the Sabbath was a gift of Jesus' lordship to us. To do what? To restore us after a long week. To repair our broken bodies and our broken souls. To replenish us when we're drained physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's about a time of renewal. And that's what Jesus' lordship is all about. Jesus' lordship is not this dictatorship from on high. It is a gift of life to his people and to his creation. Which is why it's such a tragedy when we doubt the goodness of God. Now let me get a bit practical here. The Sabbath is a point, signpost pointing to those. One of the reasons it replenishes and repairs and restores us is we experience it only in part right now, right? Monday's going to come and we're going to get tired again. Monday through Saturday comes and we're going to have to work hard again. But it's a signpost pointing to that ultimate reality, the eternal Sabbath, the eternal rest. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus' lordship is always about our good, always about our well-being, if it's a gift to us, how are we doing at practicing Sabbath? How are you doing at practicing Sabbath? See, if we struggle, see, what Sabbath is about is not the 39 types of activities. It's not about can I watch football or can I not watch football on the Sabbath? Can I eat out? Can I not eat out? Am I breaking the rules? Am I not breaking the rules? It's about humbling yourself, acknowledging your limitations, recognizing your creatureliness, and acknowledging with having one day out of seven be different from the other six so that you have this continual rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. And it's humbling yourself to say, I need replenishment. I need restoration. I need repairing. So that if you can never take time off, if you're, remember I said God works on me at the same time. If you're going, 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 guess who's not being comforted but convicted right now? If you're a type A personality, always going, that is proud 
and arrogant because you're not acknowledging your limitations. You're conceiving yourself, even if you're not consciously thinking of this, this is the spiritual dynamic, you're conceiving yourself uh, as invincible. Which is why Jesus looks at them and grieves because of their hardness of heart, because of their stubbornness. Again, we read Jesus' anger and we think, there see again, we have these predilections, these presuppositions, there's Jesus, he's going to get them. He's grieved because the hardness of heart dehumanizes them. See, do you not recognize that when we sin, when we live opposite of the design of God, we are hurting and destroying ourselves? And Jesus loves us and doesn't want us to be hurt or destroyed. So it grieves him. It pains him. It hurts him. Tim Keller commented on this verse and he said, the leadership's hearts here are as shriveled as the man's hand. See, the direction of Jesus' lordship is to do good to his people, to do good to creation, which is why he says, is it law- how does he challenge them? He's grieved in heart, he's grieved at their stubbornness, and what does he say? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What is he doing? He's basically challenging them that they miss the point. They miss the direction. They miss the true north of Jesus' lordship. So how do we get it? How do we? Confrontation of kingdoms. We've come here to be renewed. We've come here for God to work on us, to God to form us, to God to, for us to recognize. This is why we confess sin every week, to go, I've forgotten again. I need to be renewed. I need to get back to true north. I need the compass of my heart recalibrated. That's why you have daily devotions. That's why we're in the Word. But that's why we gather together for God to be in our midst to recalibrate us. So how do we get recalibrated under the true purpose of Jesus' Lordship? Well, look with me at verses 27 and 28. When Jesus says to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, the typical way Jesus referred to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he is the Sabbath. He is its meaning, and he is its source. Commentators here point out that what Jesus is saying here is almost a near synonym when he's saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. It's a near synonym for shalom. That Jewish word, that Jewish Concept, meaning wholeness, well-being, deep wholeness. The sense of well-being and wholeness that comes from the gift of rest. Tim Keller says this is not rest that's like a fitful nap. This is rest that's like REM sleep. Deep rest where you feel revived, rejuvenated, recharged. See, we need to understand some of the biblical teaching here in this concept of Sabbath rest. See, the Sabbath did not originate with the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath did not originate with the law. We're so used to thinking about it as the law, but it's actually a creation concept. It's actually built into the creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, after the creation account in chapter 1, listen to it. What's revealed for us, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, 
God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And holy means set it apart. That's where the meaning of it, he didn't make it more ethical. He didn't make it more, more, oh, Sunday is more moral than Wednesday. He set it apart. To be holy means to be set apart, to be unique, to be different. He made it holy because, here's the reason he set it apart, because on it, God himself rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, this is extremely important for us to understand the purpose of the Sabbath, that Jesus comes and says the Sabbath was made for us and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and therefore the Lord of Shalom. What is the purpose of God's rest? Did God somehow need to be restored, replenished, and repaired? Was God tired and needed a nap? Maybe God wanted to watch football. I believe God's rooting for the Giants this afternoon. Mike agrees with me. Okay, so what's the theological implication of God's rest? You all know I was joking by that, right? I see 25 out of 30 of you smiling. So I hope you know I was joking with that. What is the purpose? John Walton, who's an Old Testament scholar at a Wheaton College, puts it this way. And this is an astounding insight about the nature of God's rest and therefore the nature of the purpose of our rest. He writes, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 would have been understood in the world of the day. So that's the world that Moses was writing in as the construction, not just of a garden, but specifically of a temple. In other words, the entire creation was to become God's sanctuary, God's temple. The Garden of Eden was the sanctuary within the temple, the most holy place within the entire temple project. He says, the entire creation was meant to be a place for the creator to live in, which is why the purpose of God was always to live with man, which is why Revelation 21 says, now the dwelling of God is with man. That's the heart and the fulfillment of God's covenantal ways. So the entire creation was meant to be God's temple, God's home, a place for the creator to live in. The text tells us God created the heavens and the earth, creating them as a home for himself. And then he set apart the seventh day, not as a rest in the sense of a mere cessation of activity, but he finished the work of construction, which is to be seen as a prelude to all his intended work of developing it, furnishing it, envisioning it through the instrumentality, the agency of his image bearers. Now with the construction complete, he can rest in the sense of he takes up residence, he's the architect of the earth, he's the architect of his own home, and his image bearers, Adam and Eve, develop it. What were they called to do in the garden? Work it, take care of it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with the glory of God, that the entire earth would be God's home, a place where God and his image bearers would live together, making it just, making it beautiful, making it reflect the glory of God. 
So God's rest was that prelude for he's constructed it, he's blessed his image bearers, and he's freed them without any constraints, without any constrictions, because they're right with God. There's that sense of shalom, that sense of wholeness, that sense of well-being. So the first job that God gave Adam was to name the animals. And so with a sense of freedom and purpose, Adam could say elephant and giraffe and cat and fox and do it with utter joy and utter freedom. And then, of course, we're introduced in chapter 3. We have no idea how, other than he's a creation of God, the serpent showed up more crafty than any being that God had created. And the sad reality, the tragedy, the comic The dramatic tragedy of the fall is the disruption and violation of shalom. It is not breaking a rule. It is disrupting the wholeness so that the vocation of mankind was disrupted. But God never, as I say over and over again, God never abandoned his plan. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus is the Sabbath. He fulfills the Sabbath, which means what? He has come to fulfill the vocation, the job description of Adam. He's called the second Adam of Israel and of us. He has come to restore shalom. And how did he do it? He did it through the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 30, Very, very significant that Jesus' final words from the cross were, it is finished. We are meant to see an allusion to that word, finish, the similarity of wording with the end of the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, what did we just learn? God finished his work of creation and rested. We learn Jesus on the cross says it is finished. And what followed that? His resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, where Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he rested. He accomplished the work of new creation. What Jesus was doing was inaugurating a new world, a new creation. And we are, Christians are, that's why Andrew said earlier, the first, you know, we're part of that harvest. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, and we're part of his harvest. Jesus is sitting down, resting, but what does that mean? That's not a cessation of of activity. That means his resting place. He has empowered us with his spirit. He has constructed us to be his temple, his new temple, and now is committed to developing new creation through the agency of his redeemed image bearers, his church, who through their relationships, through works of mercy and justice, through our evangelism, through what we're doing and building the church, is building God's new creation. God is implementing that work through us. 
Do you see the radical claim Jesus was making when he was claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of Shalom? How can we embrace his lordship? How can we live out of his lordship? By living out of his rest, by living the Sabbath, by hearing the words Jesus himself said in Matthew's gospel, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened down, and I will give you rest. How? By taking his yoke, take my yoke upon you, which means you can't simply, taking a yoke means being united to, being attached to. Being a Christian is not Jesus is there, we're here, and we simply believe the truths about Jesus. That's not taking the yoke of Jesus upon yourself. Taking the yoke of Jesus is receiving and resting upon him, abiding and being united to him, so that all that he has done actually becomes yours, so that the rest he purchased is actually now your rest. So that you can get off the hamster wheel and with the same freedom, with the same renewal, with the same invigoration, with the same liberating power, live under his lordship. As he's building his new creation, you could simply say, I've been constructed, I've been remade, I've been counted righteous in you. Therefore, I no longer have to validate myself. I no longer have to prove myself. I no longer have to make a name for myself. I'm counted worthy in Christ. Therefore, Lord, how can I serve you? How are you building new creation in my neighborhood, in my workplace, in my family? How are your values how are your new creation values of justice, of righteousness, of mercy, of love? How can they be manifest? In other words, how can we build a great community? How can we be a blessing to others? As Henry Nowen said, I put this in the reflection, how can we be bread for each other and for the world? By living under the rest of Jesus. Father, we pray that we would not see this as to-dos, to-do. Instead, we would come to Jesus, who is our rest, who's Lord of the Sabbath, who said it is finished, who expressed his lordship by giving himself to us. And that we would take your yoke, Jesus, upon us. Your yoke, which is easy, your burden, which is light, and instead of trying to make a name for ourselves, instead of trying to prove ourselves, instead of trying to validate ourselves, we'd basically say, how can we serve you? What would you like me to do today? Who would you like me to love today? How can I express who you are before others today? Lord, recalibrate my heart and recalibrate our hearts. And even now as we come to the supper, may we come feeding on your flesh and blood by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.